I suppose we'll just run straight into it, hopefully not take up too much of your time. Um, but thank you so much for joining me on this one. It's going to be awesome. For those of you who don't know who Jake is or what he does, Jake, I feel like this is going to be just the best opportunity for you. Give us a little introduction into who you are, what you do in the industry. Yeah, cool. So I, um, I need to work my elevator pitch, but I guess the way I would normally explain it is I work with people who, who simply can't get fixed by other coaches. So a lot of the time people are coming into coaching and, and they've got a body comp goal. And so they're trying to lose weight or they're trying to gain muscle or whatever it is. And then sometimes people find that it's not as easy as they thought it was. And eventually they find maybe that there's some underlying health issue, which has been holding them back. And, you know, maybe they've had IBS for as long as they, they can remember or constipation or, or whatever. And eventually people get to the point where they're like, maybe, maybe I'm connecting the dots here and maybe that's the stuff, which is making it harder for me to get that body comp result that I want all along. And then they need to dig deeper. So they're the people I work with and I kind of fell into it. So the way I started is I had um, some like close family members and, and friends a few years ago who that was their story. They were doing everything perfect. They were the people who had the scale and they were weighing every single thing they ate and they were tracking calories perfectly and macros perfectly. And they were training like really intelligently and they just weren't getting anywhere. And, you know, they had those digestive issues, they had energy issues, had sleep issues. And it sucked for me as a coach at the time, seeing that and being like, I don't know why that's happening. <laughs> like no one can give you an answer to that. And so I kind of like went down some pretty wild rabbit holes. It got really deep in the blood work. And um, that's sort of the first kind of port for me. Uh, and then I found out that, you know what? So many people have these same issues and, and, most any PT listening to this will know most of your clients a are females and b females have a much higher representation of digestive issues and health issues and so that's kind of how I got to where I am now where I'm just working almost exclusively with people who have health issues who um, also have body comp goals as well awesome love that took care of my next question as well which was hey how did you get into coaching <laughs> so that's awesome it's always the um I find it interesting for how people get into coaching because it always seems to be this big like I feel like most people that ask that question are expecting like, a, oh, I just wanted to help people or I specifically mm. knew that I wanted to do this. I find a lot of the good coaches sort of just, well, just coaches in general, really just fall into it in terms of like, fuck, I hate not knowing how this thing works. And then they just get so specific with what they're doing and they go, oh shit, I'm actually pretty good at this. Mm. I mean, that's the thing. Hey, if you spend all your time learning about something, eventually you're going to get good at it. And like, that's kind of what I did before I even became a coach. I was just, and I don't know, you're probably the same. I was just interested in it. Yeah. So I was like, mm. I was doing these courses. I was mentoring with coaches. I was upskilling. I was studying this stuff before I even intended on becoming a coach because I'd find myself up at midnight just researching. I'm like, fuck, I love this stuff. Yeah. So yeah, it's just a passion. Hey. Awesome. Yeah, it is. It's essentially what drives you. If you don't have that passion for doing whatever it is, then you know, I've, I've known a lot of coaches that have gotten into this industry to make money and quickly find out that that's not the thing that keeps you alive or gets you clients or anything Absolutely. like that. So that's good to hear. <laughs> um, so what is the, I suppose we know your niche and sort of who the client is that you work with on a general level. What's the sort of biggest problem or most general problem? Let's go with general problem that you see a lot of people coming to you with that, start their health journey or the yeah most common problem you see with people starting a health journey mm. so i guess people often don't actually what i see is people don't often know that they've got symptoms until you ask them about it and so this is why for anyone who's a coach listening to this i think one of the most 
valuable tools that you can you can develop is understanding symptoms well because a lot of the time people might come to you and, and i might ask someone do you get bloated or i might say do you have any digestive issues and people might be like no i'm, I'm pretty good i don't have any digestive issues and then i'll follow up and be like okay do you have a bowel movement every single day uh well no like i maybe i go once or twice a week it's like okay so you're constipated I'm like, oh, maybe i guess so yeah well you are and then i'll be like okay so do you, do you bloat oh yeah, you know, I'm bloated every single day, but like, you know, everyone's bloated. And so once you start actually asking about symptoms, people are like, yeah, I'm, I'm bloated. I have loose stools or I have constipation or I undulate between the two. I have, you know, skin infections and I've got psoriasis and I've got a coating on my tongue. And like people end up having a whole endless list of symptoms, but we're just kind of taught that everyone has symptoms and it's not something to worry about. So I guess what I'm seeing most commonly will be bloating. You know, like everyone has bloating. And I don't just mean like a little bit of, you know, discomfort or, or even, um, you know, you eat and you're full. Like it's not just that sensation of being mm. full. Yeah. I'm talking about distension. Like, you know, I'll get people sending me photos. It looks like, the, you know, nine months pregnant. Yeah. That's yeah. the type of thing we're seeing all the time. And, and in addition to that, it's like, well, what's bloating you? And normally it's, it's people who are trying to follow a healthy diet are the ones who are most bloated and they're eating you know, we'll, I'm sure we'll touch on FODMAPs and, and fiber and veggies and stuff, but they're trying to eat a clean diet and they're eating, you know, tons of broccoli and cauliflower and cabbage and whatever else. And, and they're just looking like a beach ball. So it's A, that just, you know, over bloating distension, um, irregularity in bowel movements, whether that's constipation or diarrhea, food sensitivities, uh, and then I guess difficulty losing weight or just, you know, energy issues or, um, performance issues or, you know, they're yawning all the time in the gym. They tend to be the main things that I'm seeing with people. Awesome. Sweet. So it's more about the, um, I suppose, just asking the right questions and being aware of the symptoms so that yeah. you can obviously take action. on. Yeah. Them. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. absolutely. Love that. Love that. Awesome. So with the, cause you mentioned FODMAP there that we'll get into it. I don't have it on my notes, but I figured that would be just a perfect segue to talk about it, get into it. When people often start their health journey, I mean, the first thing from my perspective is the, the thing a lot of people do is jump onto meal plans. Mm. And that is 90% of the people. Like if I get someone that's like, Hey, can you coach me through nutrition? What are your meal plans? Like, I'm like, well, that's not coaching of nutrition. That's just a list of things that you can't have. Yeah. So when they jump onto the meal plans and they start having these things, I suppose like the broccoli, the cauliflower, and just an absurd amount of vegetables and then protein. Is there anything particular that people, I suppose, should be not looking out for because I don't want to fear monger around because you can fear monger around fucking everything out there. Do you have any advice or what would be the best sort of thing to look for in a meal plan? Would it be the symptoms again or would it be something else? Yeah, absolutely. So again, I also don't do meal plans, you know, like, like yourself, I don't think it's an educational tool. Um, and it teaches someone how to follow a plan. It doesn't teach anyone anything about nutrition. Yep. But if we were to talk about a nutritional outline or, or you know, food list or whatever we're talking about here, yep. um, I guess firstly what I'd say is when someone starts eating healthy, they normally start eating a stack more veggies. And obviously, you know, we've got keto trends and carnivore trends and there's different perspectives out there. But as a generalization, someone who's entering the gym, trying to get healthy, they're normally going to add more veggies, more plant-based foods. If you do that and you feel better, okay, Normally what's happening is you've probably cut out a whole stack of, I'm going to say loosely inflammatory foods. Okay. And so 
like they're probably going to notice like edema is going to go, fluid's going to go. They're probably going to lose a kilo in a, in a few days and they're going to feel really good. And if that's happened, okay, your issues, if you were bloated beforehand or you did have low energy or whatever, it was probably more just due, just due to the shit you were eating, junk food, sugar, whatever, right? Again, not going to demonize sugar, but you know, there's probably some kind of inflammatory response occurring. Yep. If they've gone to this healthy outline of eating and now they're like, holy moly, my bloating is so much worse than it was. Okay, that means there's something going on with, with this fiber, this plant-based food you're eating, which is causing reaction, okay? So I like that as a starting point. Is your issue an inflammatory issue or is your issue, I'm going to say, a bacterial issue? Because if you're now eating these fibrous foods, and, and we've mentioned FODMAPs, and so that's just fermentable compounds, carbohydrates, so it'll be things like onion and garlic and broccoli and cauliflower, et cetera. If you're eating those foods and you feel worse and you're bloating more, that's suggesting that there's a bacterial overgrowth. And basically bacteria is just eating these fermentable foods. Yeah. Yep. And so it's consuming these fermentable foods. You get this buildup of gases, you can get methane, hydrogen, hydrogen sulfide. And then that's what's going to push out and, and, and expand and essentially cause this bloating sensation. So I like that as a litmus test. Did you feel better when you ate this way? Or did you feel worse when you ate this way? You feel worse? Okay, what do we do there? FODMAP is one possibility. We can do a low FODMAP diet. It's not a solution. All it is is being symptom-led. And that's what I think we need to be more of, right? So when I give protocols to people, I'll say, look, these are the foods based on what you've told me, based on your blood work, based on your symptoms. These are the foods I think are going to be an issue. I think FODMAPs are going to be an issue for you. Or I think sugar is going to be an issue for you or whatever, sulfur. But I'm happy for you to tell me that I'm wrong with that one and you're fine with, with cabbage and it's only cauliflower which is the issue what's most important is to be symptom led and just one more thing i want to quickly mention on that yep. which i don't know if we'll bring up SIBO or i'll quickly mention it now so SIBO just stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and in one study about 74 percent of people who had ibs actually had SIBO as a cause of the ibs now i don't want to say that SIBO is the only cause of ibs but it's certainly something we do need to talk about and so it's just this overabundance of particular types of bacteria in the small intestine now, when it, when it comes to SIBO, there's a doctor, a researcher named Dr. Mark Pimentel, and he's kind of like the leading authority when it comes to, to SIBO research, and he's always pumping out new papers on it. Um, anyway, what he sort of, he's one of his most recent papers last year, maybe early this year, basically, he's, I don't even think it's been published yet. I think he's just done the pre-release of it. Yep. But he's talked about that what they're seeing is, is, um, is adherence to a particular SIBO diet does not affect the efficacy of the SIBO protocol. So this sort of old school mentality people have where they're saying someone's got gut issues, they've got dysbiosis, they've got SIBO, and you need to follow a biphasic diet, or you need to follow a special carbohydrate diet, a specific carbohydrate, carbohydrate diet. You need to follow a low fat format diet. Yes, this stuff might help your symptoms, but that's what matters most is actually just alleviating those symptoms it's not going to affect whether you're going to get to the bottom of it or not. It's not going to affect whether you, you reverse symptoms in the long term, with whether you get to the root cause. It's just there to make you feel better while you're doing it. Yep. Awesome. Glad you segued into it because I was literally about to ask you about SIBO as well. That well. <laughs> Perfect. Happy days on the Sweet. same page. Um, awesome. That worked out really well. Um, so you feel like it's more the figuring out the, because you said symptom led as well figuring out the symptoms going from there and this just dealing with it sort of, I suppose, step-by-step step as to the symptoms that people see and feel and 
Yeah, absolutely. So if someone's sitting here and they're like, well, okay, I've got all these gut symptoms. How do I know what's causing what? Yeah. If, if someone's symptoms are more things like bloating higher up, like in the stomach region, okay, pretty high up, um, especially after eating like meat, okay, or you feel really heavy after eating meat. Um, and maybe you get like belching after eating or you're just belching all the time. Maybe you get acid reflux. That's a specific set of symptoms. And those symptoms for me, not so much about SIBO, those are symptoms of either low stomach acid or another type of bacteria called H. pylori. Okay, so H. pylori, um, it, it, it um, inhabits our stomach essentially. And so it releases an enzyme, which basically downregulates stomach acid. So if they're the symptoms someone's got for you, okay, maybe go do a H. pylori test. It costs like 20 bucks or 30 bucks. You can do it. You can order it online and go to your GP and do it. Um, and then A, address the H. pylori, or B, you can support stomach acid and see if that helps in your symptoms. So what are some easy ways to support stomach acid? Well, I know it's a bit of a, the butt of a lot of jokes online, but apple cider vinegar can help support stomach acid. Or we could use HCL, or we could use Swedish bitters, something that's acidic with meals to see if that helps digestion. Yeah. So that'd be like, you know, one sort of set of symptoms. If your symptoms are more bloating with onion and garlic or bloating with, often sulfur-based foods, so that will be cruciferous, you know, cauliflower, cabbage, et cetera. Um, or your symptoms are undulating between loose stools and constipation. Um, or maybe you've got a history of food poisoning. If that's more your set of symptoms, that's suggesting more SIBO. And especially, especially the onion-garlic FODMAP thing, that, to me, that's almost diagnostic. Like that's one of the most valuable kind of symptoms we can use because there's not much else which is going to cause that. Maybe a sulfur sensitivity, but usually it's going to be a bacterial issue. So if that's your symptoms, okay, that's telling us it's more small intestinal, it's more bacterial, it's more SIBO, yeah? And then probably the third one, I'll just quickly chuck into this, this yep. class system would be um, if you're experiencing things like sensitivity to sugar, sensitivity to alcohol, maybe you get hungover really easily, um, like chemical sensitivities, you get a headache when you smell perfume or deodorant or scented candles and stuff like that, um, anxiety, uh, more like an addiction profile. So you're, you're like have really high addiction personality type. Um, maybe you're like searching for like exogenous forms of dopamine. So maybe like addicted to social media, addicted to um, action movies, loud music, sex, substances, alcohol, um, or also getting like fungal infections, athlete's foot, nail fungal infections, psoriasis, eczema, coating in your tongue anus itching if you've got tick yes or a lot of those symptoms that's more yeast or candida right and so just categorizing these different symptoms can just start to empower people to know okay where do i look next do i look at do i look at the small intestine do i look at yeast do i look at h pylori in stomach do you know what i mean like it, it just sort of gives you that next step yep so i suppose fuck again um we're gonna do more of these fucking reading my mind with the <laughs> The segue into that one as well um, is going to be what would be the next step for someone who, yeah. you know, there's going to be a whole bunch of different symptoms that come up because obviously from the different things that could have been there, you mentioned a whole bunch of other different protocols for it. And that, that's obviously the reason that a lot of people get coaches because they go, here is a symptom or here is something I want fixed. What the fuck do I do? Yeah. So what would be the first step if someone believes they're sensitive or how do they identify sensitivity just like what's the first step for someone that is feeling a little bit lost and thinks it might be something deeper than surface level yeah probably just to google your symptoms and see what google says is wrong with you that would be totally taking <laughs> this um it is hard to know where to go with that hey so 
Um, and, 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 you know, I don't want to speak poorly of anyone or any industry, but um, a lot of the, but, you know, you know, it's going to go well when someone starts with, but, yep. but a lot of the time people are coming in that have been let down by, um, by the advice they've been given. And, you know, I, I would suggest that as a whole, the, the conventional medical realm isn't really on top of this. Um, you know, doctors tend to do about eight hours for nutrition studies in, in their in their course. And so a lot of time we've got in our mind that, well, our doctor is the first protocol for anything health, anything nutrition. And yep. so people are going to the doctor expecting answers and they're not getting those answers because that's simply not where we're really meant to be looking for nutritional answers. Yep. So it is hard to know where to go. Um, for me personally, looking at it, what I say is it's not a, it's not, the domain of a particular industry, right? What it is, is good individuals. So there's going to be good coaches out there who are going to be able to help you. There's going to be good doctors. There's going to be holistic doctors or functional doctors. There's going to be good naturopaths. There's going to be good chiropractors. There's going to be good acupuncturists who are actually going to know some of this stuff, right? So it's not about, well, this is the, the place to find the person. It's about finding the right person who's going to actually help you with that. So I'd say word of mouth, that helps immensely. Find someone who's had similar issues who helps you get through those issues? Um, and, you know, it sucks to be told, well, you can't do it by yourself. You need somebody to guide you through it. But realistically, it's going to be a whole lot of a quicker journey to go to someone who knows how to do it. Like, otherwise, the alternative is do what you and I have done and spend the next five or 10 years just getting balls deep into this stuff. Yeah, you can do yeah. that and you can read every book you can on the topic and you can listen to podcasts after podcasts and you can do courses or you can go find a practitioner, a coach who can do it for you in 12 weeks. So, yeah. And I suppose I heard something not to be this guy that always has fucking quotes for everything, but the wisest of people learn from other people's mistakes. Absolutely. So it is going to be, you know, one of the things that if you do want to do it, you can hundred percent do it. And it's always going to be something that I'm preaching for all of my clients is the empowerment to do it yourself. But then at the start is every single client that I take on board as well. It's going to be, and I assume you would be much the same in terms of, I want to teach you. So you don't need me anymore. Yeah. So that obviously, if we've done our jobs correctly, shit business model, we don't need that client anymore. We don't need that person. And then we obviously move on to the next person and revolving door because we've done our job so well. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly. the way that I see a lot of people. That's the sort of coach that I feel people should be looking for. Mm. Someone that is going to do their job or just straight out says, I'm going to help you get this, get to this level. And then you can go do it by yourself. Because yeah. we didn't get to where we are. You know, we've had mentors along the way as well. Different mentors. We've learned from fucking research papers and getting balls deep into it, as you said before. All of that research comes from someone else as well. We didn't go mm. out there and conduct lab, lab studies and everything by ourselves. So there's always going to be indirect mentors along the way and people that you'll learn from. So yeah, love hearing that. Yeah. Uh, the... To go back on it as well, and something that we said before we started the recording, even though I was recording the whole goddamn time, um, indirectly working with people that have anxiety and depression, everything like that, would you mm -hmm. mind touching on a little bit? I know you said you didn't work directly like seeking out the people with anxiety and depression, but in your experience, what do you feel is the common solution or problem or just general best advice that you could give for people let's start with anxiety yeah so you know i'm always i guess want to be cautious of like trying to boil down a complex issue into one specific narrative yeah. right yeah, so i don't want to suggest that this is everyone's issue but the clientele that i'm seeing 
um, you know, I mentioned yeast and I did use word anxiety before when I was talking about yeast and candida. And so I'll just touch back on that. So if we do it, and yeast is normal in our gut microbiome, right? Everyone's got a degree of yeast candida that's normal. And there's hundreds of different types of candida. But when we do have an overgrowth of some of these organisms, that's where things go south, yeah? And so say like yeast is opportunistic. The analogy I use, imagine you've got a mansion, you've got a family living in the mansion, everything's fine. Now you go, you kick out that family, you're going to get squatted, you're going to come and, and live there. It's kind of like that with the gut. If we start eliminating good plays, we get rid of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium, and we take lots of antibiotics, we've got antibiotics in our food supply, eventually we're going to get this overgrowth of opportunistic stuff. And so we get this overgrowth of yeast and candida and it produces a toxin called acetaldehyde. Now, if you drink alcohol, alcohol, ethanol, ethanol converts into acetaldehyde. It's the same toxin, right? So what that does, it starts to damage a part of your brain called the nigra, which is where you, it actually damages dopamine receptors there. So you produce about half of your dopamine there. So it causes this like spontaneous release of dopamine and then it downregulates dopamine receptors. So I mentioned about like addictive behavior profiles. That's what we tend to see because we're getting this downregulation of, of, of dopamine sensitivity. So we've got this endogenous dopamine issue, dopamine being the like, um, you know, motivation neurotransmitter, the neurotransmitter responsible for like focus and drive and libido and get up and go. Yeah. And so now we're searching for that externally. And so you tend to see this sort of um, this, you know, a addiction B that tends to be this sort of, um, you know, low energy, low drive um, tends to be this sort of anxiety sort of sensation alongside that. And so for me with my clients, a lot of the time I'm seeing that due to, due to yeast, due to acetaldehyde exposure. And what else do we know about acetaldehyde? Well, it's, it's a priority toxin. Your body needs to burn that first. So that's going to be before you're going to be burning glucose, before you're going to be burning fats. And so, you know, someone goes out, has a big night drinking, they go home and sleep. What happens? You wake up a lot during the night because you're going hypoglycemic because your body's not burning glucose. It's now burning acetaldehyde. So what we start to see with this yeast exposure, we're getting these, these personality shifts we're getting this this you know um this you know being prone to anxiety we're getting um maybe even difficult losing body fat because they're getting this sort of like you know lower energy expenditure poor sleep so that tends to be a really common profile i'm seeing and i actually use that as a, as a symptomology assessment I'm, I'm comparing bloods and symptoms and if i see people ticking things like anxiety issues sleeping alongside some of those physiological things like skin issues and coating and tongue, et cetera. And then I'm comparing that to, to blood markers in particular, in that instance, I'm going to look at liver enzymes. If ALT and AST is elevated, that's a really good sign of acetaldehyde exposure. So if that's going on and that's the picture I'm being presented with, first and foremost, I'm going to address the, the candida, right? So I'm going to use antimicrobials. I'm going to use, you know, antifungal herbs. I'm going to use um, maybe a low sugar diet because in that instance, sugar is what's feeding the yeast, right? And, and people often, I love it when people confirm this stuff for me. Like I'll get clients who'd be like, you know, I've got anxiety, I've got coating in my tongue, blah, blah, blah. I'll be like, how do you go with sugar? They'll be like, oh, no, no, I don't do well with sugar. I have sugar and I'm more anxious the next day. It's like, okay, you've just told me it's yeast. You know what I mean? Yeah. So for me, that's what I'm seeing most commonly as that narrative. Um, I will mention parasites also produce acetaldehyde. So someone could have, say, like blastocystis hominis, which would be pretty common from a parasite perspective. Cats really high with blastos. So cats or, or going traveling are pretty common ways to get that. Yep. Um, so they're going to be things I'm going to address if there's anxiety. Uh, and then, you know, when it comes to, to, to neurotransmitters as a whole, I'll just quickly touch on this and pass yeah. back over to you. Obviously, a lot of our neurotransmitters we're producing in our gut as well. And so 
not only is there this dopamine thing in the Negro, which I was talking about with, with acetaldehyde, but if we are, if we've got, you know, any damage to gut lining, if we've got any overgrowth of bacteria in the small intestine, that's going to, that's directly going to impact neurotransmitters. And, you know, the most obvious example would be serotonin. We're producing 90% plus of serotonin in our gut. Well, serotonin is kind of a big deal. That's how SSRIs work. So, you know, is anxiety caused by low, the two most common classes of medication for anxiety are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and the same thing, but for dopamine. So yep. we're trying to preserve serotonin or we're trying to preserve dopamine. And so in that case, I just gave it the gut. Well, dopamine, yeast, serotonin, anything in the small intestine. So for me, a lot of the time, if we just focus on what's happening in the small intestine, generally speaking, we're going to see anxiety, depression, neurological symptoms. A lot of that stuff's going to improve along the way. Awesome. Love that. This is, <laughs> I got to, this is interesting as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Just listening to all this, obviously, you know a lot more than me when it comes to the nutritional side of things as well. And, you know, you've got your specialties. I've got mine as well. But just sitting here and listening to this, I'm like, fuck, <laughs> that used to be me. Yeah. <laughs> so it's good to hear all of this confirmed and just going that little bit deeper in terms of, or I suppose, instead of the doctor just saying, take this, you'll feel fine. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, a lot of medications for me were, they just zombified me. Yeah. And I suppose antidepressants or anti-anxiety, I feel they don't, you'll know more than me on this one. They don't make you happy. They don't make you the opposite of what you are. They just cancel out what you were being or displaying. Or as mm. we said before, it feels like they're just masking the symptoms or taking away the symptoms. And then when there's no symptoms available for me, there were no symptoms available. I didn't have the anxiety. I didn't have anything, but the counter part two that was because I didn't have those things I felt like I had nothing left to think yeah. about I just zombified myself yeah quick question on that which I feel like is not going to be a quick question do you know why that happens um look I, I'd sort of be stepping outside of my my sort of expertise if I tried to hazard a guess there um so yeah I probably don't particularly want to comment on it but I guess what I would just mention with it is like you, you mentioned, obviously this, this notion of, of like masking symptoms and ultimately that's all this is, right. You know, if mm. someone's got a serotonin transportation issue or a dopamine issue or whatever is the solution to that, to downregulate how we metabolize those neurotransmitters, that's probably not going to be the solution, right. It's going to mask it. Or it's the solution to work out why we've got this, this sensitivity issue. And, you know, that can be, applied i guess to any class of medication and again i'm not anti-medication i'm not anti-conventional medicine but yep. and like my mom's a nurse i'll just put that out there because a lot of the time people do paint me as, as anti-medicine but yep. a lot of the time that's that's ultimately what our approach is it's let's use this band-aid solution to mask those symptoms which is it, it's great you know i've got no issue with masking symptoms to an extent because if that's going to be the next step for someone that's okay i don't care you know, where they're finding that next step, if it's taking them on a trajectory to getting better, that's okay. But what we need to understand is a lot of the time when we're masking those symptoms, it's like it's like there's these missiles going off. This I, I'm not used to the analogy. I'm not sure where it's going to end up, so bear with me. I, I do hand. the same. That's fine. I'm thinking, <laughs> it's like, it's, fuck, that was bad, but... Yep. <laughs> Let's Go see on, if it works. So it's like there's these, these missiles being fired at, you know, a neighboring country or whatever, yeah? And it's like our defense system is just trying to shoot those missiles out of the sky 
And it's like, okay, well, we've got that one, that symptoms managed. We've got that one, that symptoms managed. But it's like, yeah, but eventually we're just going to get these missiles that are going to like misdirect and it's going to, there's going to be collateral damage and it's going to blow up the fucking hospital. It's going to blow up this or whatever. Like, it's yeah. kind of like we're not dealing at all with where those missiles are coming from. We're just kind of blinded to it. Yep. Didn't really work as an analogy. But point I'm making is Made sense. <laughs> big issues are going to pop up, right? Yeah. And so it's not even, it's like, to me, it kind of feels like negligence because it's like, not only are we not fixing this underlying issue, but, you know, if we go back, and I know I talk about yeast a lot, but if, let's just go back to yeast as an example. Okay, if we don't address the yeast, is it just that we're going to have a dopamine issue? Okay, well, what else can develop? And, you know, it's like, well, if we leave that unchecked, we're just going to develop a larger overgrowth of it. We're going to start to develop... Um, you know, we could could have more significant liver detoxification issues. We're going to start to develop um, like a B1, B2 deficiency. That's going to start to affect blood sugar balance. It's like, you know, this stuff is just going to create big and big issues if we leave it over time. It's going to start to affect, uh, say, uh, you know, immune dysregulation. Now we'll see, we'll probably see like a low innate immune system. We'll see white blood cells come down. We'll leave that for long enough. We're going to be more prone to things like autoimmunity. It's like, we're not just masking a symptom. We're making ourselves more likely to get even worsening conditions, worsening symptoms down the line. So yeah. didn't answer at all your question about why you're feeling zonked out when you are using SSRIs. There's one more thing I want to mention there. Have you heard of the book? Um, I think it's called Lost Connections or... or heard, heard of it, something... I can't remember the exact name of it, but I feel like I know the one you're talking about. I can picture the cover, mm. but haven't read it. A mm. lot of people have recommended it to me. It's pretty interesting. And, and there's this one bit in there where he does talk about um, a, a trial essentially of, of SSRIs and um, found that basically there was no difference in the placebo group than the, the experimental group taking the SSRIs so that the efficacy was the same. Um, and, you know, obviously the way he's talking about it in the book would suggest that maybe there's a bit of foul play when it's come to the science and that actually there's not as much science backing them up as as what people would like others to believe and whether that's true or not you know again i don't want to comment too much but the reality is this stuff doesn't work for everyone and yeah. so if it is helping some people great but you know it's, it's for some people it's making them feel zonked out if some people it's just not doing anything we know sexual dysfunction is one of the, the biggest side effects the symptoms of ssris that's something i deal with people a little bit as well and they're like how is that going to go for your confidence you know if you're yeah. you're taking this thing because you're anxious and depressed and then suddenly you know, you've got issues with, with sexual performance and, and there's going to be relationship issues, whatever else. Like, is that really going to be the, yeah. the overall solution? Yeah, exactly. And then, as you said earlier before, is, you know, it's not anti-medication or anything like that. It's just pretty much what is the next step for someone? Yeah. And then as long as that next step doesn't lead to them going down an alley and then a giant fucking brick wall in front of them, mm-hmm. as long as they're continuing to move forward, I don't really care what that step looks like for them. Yeah. As much as I, you know, because a lot of the people I work with are general populace, they can't lose weight, but there's a lot of emotional and mental barriers for them losing weight. Yeah. I bag out keto a fair bit. But at the end of the day, if that works for someone and that's the thing that they want to do, then go for it mm. because it's up to the person as to what they want to do and what they're going to decide as to it's going to happen. Realistically, a lot of people end up getting off whatever diet they do with whatever name it has, keto, paleo, Mediterranean, balance, whatever. Most people end up getting off their diet once they sort of hit their, towards their goal. Not everybody hits their goal and then they might readjust the goal, whatever the shit happens. But a lot of people get off that and they go, "Eh, what was the lifestyle that I want? I go, there we go. Now we're asking the better questions. And it starts to become the 
I suppose almost everybody that signs up with me and it's going to be the exact same with you is first off like the symptoms, but then what is the lifestyle that that person is living? Because the lifestyle is going to be the number one thing that is going to get them, I believe anyway, that is going to either get them results or keep them in the same position that they are six months from now, where it mm. could be those small little habitual behavioral changes that if they've made those, that's where the bigger results are going to come from. So whatever that next step looks like yeah. for me, I'm always thinking about, okay, what's something we can implement that they're going to be using two, three, four, five years from now, because as much as people sign up for like three, six, 12 months, whatever the fuck they do, my thing is always, can they use this education, this exercise, this, whatever it is, can they use this tool for the rest of their life or how mm. useful is this tool? Mm. So that's what I'm always thinking in terms of whenever anybody has some sort of problem with me or not with me, but they when working with me yeah there we go so that's all that's that's where i'm coming from it is it's always lifestyle and that's art of coaching what you've touched on there you know that's and that's where like coaching is such a unique gig because you have to be a you need to know your trade you need to understand nutrition and and whether it's gut health or training or whatever b you need to understand people and you need to have like you i mean how often are you a counselor like that's half the time Mm. you're just trying to deal through people's emotions and, and emotional trauma and baggage and whatever else and then see, you actually just need to be like socially intelligent and know, well, what is best for that person at that point in time? And mm. there's no point. And this is where some, some of the worst coaches, or I shouldn't say like that, some of the most intelligent coaches I know are just not actually good coaches because what they do is they just say, well, this is, this is the best plan you could plan, you could strive for. Like based on you and your symptoms and trade, you said your goal is this. Okay, mate, this is what you need to do. You need to eat you know rocket with every single meal and you need to eat this with this meal and you need 125 grams of of white rice 45 minutes before training and you need to have pomegranate seeds at this time of the day and it's like okay maybe that was the best possible diet and maybe five percent of people are going to love that and they're going to be like man tell me why i'm having the pomegranate seeds i'm all about that yep. and 95 percent of people are like fuck me i can't do that <laughs> and so like you said it's like you know what like when I get a, a client come to me, even if they've got SIBO and I'm like hundred percent certain they've got SIBO, I'll make an executive call within myself, what protocol I'm going to do with them. And they, in my head may not be up to doing a SIBO protocol because they've never changed a diet in their life. They're eating junk food with every single meal. Like everything is just all over the shop. I'm not even going to mention SIBO to them. I'm going to do a flexible dieting outline with them and just eliminate the shit, yeah? Yep. Because for them, that's the next step. That's what's going to work six months from now, a year from now, right? Yep. So like you said, you need to work out where that client's at, what's going to be the best thing for that particular client and how are they going to implement that into the lifestyle, into the life going forwards, as opposed to just like a flash in the pan. Yep. Awesome. And for those of you not watching the video, I was smiling that entire fucking time because I knew where that was going and it's what I fucking preach for everybody. (laughs) So I love hearing that. (laughs) Awesome. Well, that is um, most of what I want to touch on. I suppose we'll leave it with the last question, which I feel like could have a million different answers and advices and everything like that. But the most common thing I get with a lot of people, and I, I don't know about you, but PCOS and endometriosis love it yeah so how long do i have you know there's so much to say about that six um, hours that's cool okay <laughs> let's let's go with endo first um yep. <laughs> the i've mentioned like i mentioned SIBO a little bit i mentioned actually i don't think i did mention negative gram bacteria i'm not sure if i touched on that or not but basically 
in a nutshell, we've got different types of bacteria in our body. One particular type of bacteria is called negative gram bacteria. It, that's not to say that it's bad. I know it sounds that way when you say negative. It just is the structure of the bacteria. Okay. Yep. Now, basically, what it does, it does, it is kind of bad in a sense because it contains a a coating, and that coating is made up of it's called lipopolysaccharides (LPS). Okay. People abbreviate it or, or um, you know, colloquialize it to little pieces of shit because it's really damaging, right? And so what happens is this bacteria will expel, you're like, how the fuck do we get here when you're talking about endo, just wait. So this bacteria will expel this outer membrane over and over again, millions of times over, okay? So you end up with heaps and heaps of LPS particles in your system. Now, that should be happening within the gut to an extent that's okay. Everyone's got negative gram bacteria, that's normal. E. coli is an example of a negative gram bacteria, which is normal in, in the gut um, microbiome. Anyway, if we've got an overabundance of this, we end up with excessive amounts of LPS. LPS is incredibly inflammatory, okay? So in, in studies with mice, when they want to induce inflammation, actually inject them with LPS. That's how inflammatory this stuff is. And so what we do, if we've got this overabundance here, we get this, this huge amount of LPS. It can enter into the blood, so if you've got permeability in the gut, for example, it now enters into the bloodstream, we get translocation occurring. So now the LPS is going to accumulate elsewhere. And so it tends to accumulate around a few key areas. One is areas of cartilage. So people often can get like um, finger pain or joint pain or a real common symptom is this with the neck where you're just like always kind of bending your neck and a real stiff neck all the time. Um, back pain, knee pain, any sort of cartilage. And then often up through the teeth, you kind of get like gum pain or jaw pain. That's real common with LPS as well. And then the other one is pelvic. So pelvic pain. Um, and that can be around menstrual cycle, can be around bowel movements it can be um around intercourse they tend to be the, the main sort of of times and so that can be and what we know why i'm talking about that is what we know is in in women with with endo is they actually have higher levels of lps in their menses blood and so we know that as a whole it tends to be these higher levels of negative gram bacteria in, in women with endometriosis now not only does it cause that okay so not only do we have now this accumulation this stimulus of pain okay and it actually stimulates nerves as well you can get like radiating nerve pain from lps as well so we've got that issue going on in addition to that it's super inflammatory one of the worst things you can do for any period issue is going to be inflammation, right? More inflammation, more pain, more inflammation, more blood clotting, more inflammation, heavier bleeds. Okay. So now we've got inflammation as well as a stimulus for pain. Okay. And there's also some evidence to suggest, and this is just a hypothesis by some researchers at the moment, but LPS may trigger tissue growth. Okay. So not only is it causing the pain, but it could even be contributing to tissue growth in a case of endometriosis. Right. So, those are things we need to consider. Does that mean every single person with endo is caused by negative gram? Probably not. But is that a, a connection we need to address? Absolutely, right? In addition to that, again, from studies, we know that people with endometriosis tend to have higher um, percentages or higher likelihood of having SIBO, okay? And in those women who have SIBO and endo, when they go on a low FODMAP diet, again, not the solution, but it will control symptoms, they get improvement in symptom scores, not just for digestive, but also for endometriosis type symptoms, pain, heaviness, and bleeding, etc. So there's a huge correlation there, the gut microbiome and with endo. And I'll just sort of conclude that convo a little bit by saying, like uh, positing again why that could be. A lot of bacteria produces an enzyme called beta-glucuronidase. And so we've got a phase two liver detox pathway called glucuronidation. And it's that pathway where we, um, we 
we uh, conjugate and, and, and eliminate um, hormones, okay? So things like estrogen. And so if we've got a high amount of beta-glucuronidase, it's actually causing the unconjugation of, of bound estrogen. So we've got bound estrogen, meant to be clearing it, we, we, we unstick it essentially, and then we recycle it. So now we're getting this, this circulating, excess circulating estrogen. Obviously endometriosis, some degree of estrogenic issue there, whether that's systemically high estrogen, whether that's estrogen high at a tissue level, it depends. But that can be partly why we're seeing this, this correlation with SIBO and with endo as well. So if you're someone who's listening to this, you're like, you know, I've got endo. And endo is hard to diagnose, right? So I would go off symptoms. Obviously, I'm not going to diagnose someone. But if someone's coming to me and they've got incredibly painful and heavy periods, well, that's probably good evidence that there's a chance of endometriosis there, yeah? So if that's going on and you've got digestive issues or you've got bloating and you've got diarrhea and you've got constipation or, or you've got sensitivity to FODMAPs, any of these issues we've talked about, that ultimately is where I'd be looking first. So that's where diet can do wonders for someone with endometriosis pain. And I'd say that there's, this is one of those areas where like it's, you know, it's such a like um, stereotype, but it's like, like it feels like it breaks my heart when I have people who have endo because it's like you're not getting answers for this. You know, people are going from doctor to doctor, to doctor, specialist to specialist, and the answers they get are going to pill, or I mean, really, it's going to pill, get surgery or going to pill, and or deal with the pain, take endo, or take like really heavy painkillers, right? And a lot of the time, you know, I don't want to sort of oversell anything, but I'd say like 75% of the time we're working with clients where where getting them down to being able to use either no painkillers or pain, like one or two doses of painkillers in the first like six to 12 hours. And that's it. it. Just doing things like diet change and, and maybe dealing with SIBO or bacterial issues. And that's from using you know, most of the clients I'm working with are using a whole pack or two packs of painkillers each cycle to now using two to four tablets. Right. So there's definitely light at the end of the tunnel. Like if you're going to do the work and dig deep and see what's going on, but it's hard to know where to, where to follow, where to go. You know, we're just getting such mixed messages and mixed voices in this space. Yeah. Um, PCOS, I like, again, you know, <laughs> there's, there's so much that could be said there. Um, but first and foremost, like, it's one of those ones. It's, it, it, there's always exceptions to the rule, but as a generalization, which is dangerous to make in, in anything health-wise, yeah. but as a generalization, for most people, it's going to be, it's, it's insulin issues and it's obviously high androgens, right? Now, there's a few things that can cause high androgens. In, in a subset of people, there can be um, adrenal issues, which are causing this androgen issue. Um, and in another subset of people, it can be post-pill. So they've come off the contraceptive pill and that could be causing PCOS. But in the vast majority of people, it's an insulin issue first and foremost. That's stimulating the ovaries to overproduce androgen hormones, so male hormones, testosterone, DHEA, and then that's what's causing the PCOS symptoms. So if we control this at the top of that cascade, which is insulin, yep. the androgens are going to get better, right? So that doesn't need, like I look at that and I'm like, man, 95% of the time, this is one of the easiest things for us to work with, right? Like it's, yeah. we, what are we going to do? We're going to use a, a low glycemic diet, right? <laughs> we, we started chatting because I talked to you about actually using ketogenic diet for people with PCOS and there's, you know, that's something that can be done. You don't need to, but it's certainly one 
um, intervention that can be used, or you can just use, I, I don't normally do that. I just pull someone's carbs down a little bit. I normally go about 110, 120 um, grams of carbs a day for PCOS usually, yep. um, but normally lower glycemic types of sources and then use some stuff to help with glucose. So I'm going to use magnesium, like magnesium and zinc. You can't go past magnesium zinc. They're so important for glucose control. In addition to that, something like a, a berberine or a norzitol or chromium, some kind of glucose disposal agent. In addition, tidying up the diet and, and reducing maybe inflammatory sort of food sources. Nine times out of 10, that's all it takes. Right? Like within one or two cycles, you start to see people's symptoms change. Yeah. And then that is, I suppose that's the big thing. Sorry, I've got a bloody whippersnipper right out my window. I'm not sure if you can hear that. <laughs> I couldn't hear it. Okay, good. Because I muted myself through half of that. And I'm like, of course, as soon as it gets to the part where we want to, like everything, like the part one hour, <laughs> fuck me. All right, anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, I suppose it's it all comes down to, again, just figuring out those symptoms. But the thing for um, PCOS and like obviously the keto diet and lowering carbs and everything like that, I'm always thinking about, you know, is like that is obviously the first step for someone. Again, exceptions to the rule as to whatever it is. Um, I'm always thinking about that that next step. I suppose as a as a coach, you would be much the same as like here, do do this, take this next step. And then you're already mm. thinking about step two, three, four. Yeah. So for me, I'm always thinking about that step two, three, four in terms of how does someone start to get off that lower carb diet if they do have PCOS? And I know one of the big questions. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, your inbox better than me. I don't even know your fucking inbox. Um, but I've seen a few questions of can PCOS be reversed or can it be fixed or essentially how you go from dealing with those symptoms and addressing that symptom to then do I have to maintain this for the rest of my life or how do we get away from the thing that was the symptom mm. fixer? Mm. Said that poorly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, with any sort of dysfunction, the way that normally is going to look is there's going to be a high degree of support that that person's going to need initially, whether that's a bacterial imbalance, whether that's blood sugar issues, PCOS, whatever. Yep. And then as those symptoms start to reverse or reduce or whatever language you want to use, yep. then you're going to need a lower level of support. And then eventually you may be able to maintain that without, I would say, any supplemental support, but probably still with, you know, the right diet and lifestyle. So when it comes to something like PCOS, you know, the question initially you said is, can it be reversed? Conventionally, people are going to say no, right? But I'd say, well, what are the symptoms of PCOS? If we look at the symptoms of PCOS, which is, let's say, the, you know, um, maybe hair loss, hormonal acne, um, you know, anovulation, issues with menstrual cycle, can those be reversed? Absolutely. Every single one of those can, can certainly be reversed. So do we, and, and cysts, you know, we should obviously include cysts, although that's not actually essential for a PCOS diagnosis, yep. but all of those things can absolutely be reversed. So why would we tell someone that it can't be reversed? I don't know. It feels to me like it's just this medical fear, but nonetheless, what does it look like to come out on the other side? For some people, it's going to look different, right? For some people, for a subset of people, they're, they're always going to deal worse with a high amount of carbs okay does someone need to be on sub 100 grams of carbs for their whole life i don't know many people that need to do that right yeah. but there are some people who are going to have some genetic variances in dna like i went there but yeah i do think that there's going to be some snips which are going to affect someone's glucose tolerance and for some people that might be 150 to 200 grams a day right i don't think many people 
once they've dialed in other things, they're going to have to be lower than that, right? I would class that as a low to mod carb diet. Yeah. Um, but there's going to be some people who just aren't going to do well on a high carb diet, realistically, yeah? Um, but, you know, as a whole, if people are doing the lifestyle thing, they, they're moving their body, you know, they're actually burning some stored glycogen, they're getting in the gym, they're getting in our sleep. You know, sleep obviously is one night of sleep deprivation is going to cause someone to be as insulin resistant as a type two diabetic. So if they're focusing on sleep, they're focusing on moving, they're focusing on, on maybe, you know, cleaning up to an extent their food sources. Well, if all those things are taken care of and, and nutrients, micronutrients are taken care of. I mentioned zinc and mag. Well, I mean, travel, well, not even 99%, 100% of the time when I'm getting blood work done, there's a dozen markers which are out of optimal ranges every single time, hands down. Like I think the best I'll see might be like three or four markers that are out. And so, you know, if we're focusing on making sure someone's actually got the nutrient status they need, B vitamins, mag, zinc, whatever else, if all that's taken care of, okay, absolutely. Someone's probably going to be able to get to a point where they can have maybe a mod, maybe even, you know, I've had clients come out of and be able to have a high carb diet. Absolutely. But it's going to depend on the person and it's going to depend on their hormonal cycle as well. Because a lot of people are going to find in the luteal phase, they're always going to be more carb resistant or more insulin resistant, less sensitive, right? So for some people, they, they might get to a point where follicular phase, first two weeks of the cycle, they can go mod to high carb but they might always need to go slightly, I'm not talking keto, but slightly lower carb in the yep. second two weeks of the cycle. So it does depend a bit on the person, but it's not normally ever going to require ketogenic your whole life, have to use four different glucose disposal agents. Like, no, that's not going to be the case, but some people will need some ongoing support. Yep. Awesome. And I like the, um, I suppose this is, this wouldn't be so much for, PCOS or endo or anything of like those diagnoses I'm talking like anxiety, depression, cause that's, that's my realm. Again, not a psychologist counselor or anything like that. It's just 90% of the people that I work with. There is in my belief, there is this thing with diagnosis, diagnoses, diagnoses, where as soon as someone gets that diagnosis, they latch onto it yep. and they go, well, that's me for life. Yeah. And it is something, you know, it, it feels like a bit of a broken bone where you ask anybody like, oh, do you have anxiety? And even though they may not be, you know, presenting with the symptoms and they're the most eccentric person in the world and they're going deep on everything and they've done all the background work to, I suppose, like myself, now I don't get as anxious, but I would mm -hmm. still identify as someone with anxiety because every now and then, you know, do I still deal with it sometimes? 100%. But I don't, I'm trying not to identify as someone that has anxiety i'm just trying to identify as me but at the same time it feels like a broken bone where someone goes like you know for lack of a better question what's wrong with you or if there's like mm -hmm. a pre-questionnaire of like do you have any mental health issues or any injuries or anything like that it feels like anxiety or depression or any other diagnosis that they've received is similar to a broken bone where they go oh yeah back in uh, 2006 i broke my leg mm -hmm. like cool does it still cause any pain or discomfort mm -hmm. or this or that or whatever no, nah, it healed pretty damn well. I'm like, awesome. Almost completely disregard. Yeah. Because it's been healed. It's been rehabbed. They know what they're doing. They know what they're looking for. They know, for example, if it's the leg or anxiety or depression or whatever, they know the signs, symptoms and everything that they do and how to handle that situation. So sometimes I do get people coming to sign up to quote unquote, fix their anxiety. And th the reason I bring this up is for the question of can PCOS 
be reversed. I feel like it's the exact same for a lot of diagnosis is mm. sometimes it doesn't have to be reversed. It's something that you can work through and then sort of like, oh, there's no more symptoms. There's no mm. more this, there's no more pain. There's no more whatever. But there's still that mental latching of I got diagnosed with yeah. this thing. So for me, I mean, I just wanted to throw that in there because I just thought it was mm. super interesting with a lot of diagnoses. People are trying to leave it or sort of like reverse it or get rid of it. And for me, again, this is 100% just me. I like having anxiety and depression for the fact of, and I know that's very unpopular for people to hear, like, why the fuck would you enjoy that? The way I see it is, again, just me. I am beyond thankful that that has happened to me. Like if the universe was going to dole out, now I'm starting to get fucking spiritual and shit. If the universe was going to dole out anxiety and depression and essentially what happened to me in my life, I'm glad that it happened to me as opposed to a friend or a family member or anything like that. And at the end of the day, the anxiety and the depression and working through it is how I became such a good coach with emotional intelligence, moving through anxiety and the depression. And we've said it before, we'll say it again, going balls deep on the research behind how do you get better with those things? And if I didn't mm -hmm. have anxiety, depression, those signs and symptoms and having to learn how to live with myself, essentially, I feel like I wouldn't be where I am today. So for those things, I'm always like, well, I'm thankful that I've got anxiety. Mm -hmm. I'm thankful I had that symptom and this and that happened to me where it pushed me to be a better person and understand more about myself. And you can say that I believe for the same thing of, PCOS and endo, yeah, they're fucking horrible things to have to go through. If everybody were happy and healthy, that'd be amazing. We'd be mm -hmm. out of work, but hell, the world would be a happier place. And that's what yeah. we want. But having those signs and symptoms and learning about what you're going through, not just from a medical nutrition or emotional or physical standpoint in terms of health, but just moving through those things. I believe that if you're going through those things, there's going to be someone in your life that you're going to come in contact with that is going to have that same problem and signs and symptoms. And as we said at the start of the call, finding that individual that went through that thing to then say, how mm. did you get better? Which will then link them up to someone else. So for me, I believe there's always this like cause effect relation of like, if you're in a shit place right now, and of course me fucking flip the entire thing to be mental health. Um, if you're going through this shit situation at the moment, or you've got these symptoms, you've got PCOS, you've got endo, you've got whatever it is. For me, I'm always like, fuck, that's a hell of an opportunity to have. That's exciting as shit. It's painful. It's annoying. And yes, it's going to require a little bit of work and grind and whatever other synonym you want to put into it. But those things for me, I just find it fucking exciting in working through and learning is to, how do you take that next step yourself? How do you get better yourself? So that's just something. I thought it's using the diagnosis as a servant and not as a master, isn't it? So it's yeah. like you said, there's an opportunity there, which obviously, you know, if people listen to this, take with a grain of salt, because obviously if you've got a pain condition, we're not saying that you should be thankful for your pain, exactly. um, but you're using that as an, well, you know, opportunity, servant, whatever to, you know, it's like the, the most biggest cliche in the world, you know, your mess becomes a message. You know, there's going to be some good that can come out of that, hopefully in some way. But yep. what we don't want it to become is a master where now it's like, well, that diagnosis defines me. That diagnosis means nothing can ever change. Yep. It means that's who I am. It means there's no point trying to find help. There's no point trying to find what's caused it. 
like that can become disempowering as well. Mm. So it's just, it's giving it the, the right amount of power that it needs and not any more that's going to disempower you, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And that's, um, you know, I could talk about this for fucking ever, but that's also something that I mentioned as well as to how I turned my anxiety, depression into it was because I quite literally separated it. This was personal to me. I separated the entities from me. And as you said, I turned them into a servant as opposed to the master. And I said, right, well, if anxiety wants me to do this thing and this, and it's telling me that I'm going to sit on the couch, I'm going to do this. And then that would snowball into depression of all the fun fucking thoughts that come with that of, you know, these are the things that my mental health issues want me to do. Well, they're just giving me a fucking game plan into like, if I just do the opposite of what they want me to do, that's giving me a game plan into how I become healthy. Mm. That for me was one of the biggest things in getting mentally strong was separating and turning them into, as you said, servants, as opposed to masters, not letting them rule everything that's going to happen, but instead just letting them help me Mm. say, no, you need to sit on the couch because you're not going to lose weight. There's no point in doing this. You're not going to get better. You'll never be a personal trainer because who's going to hire someone that's that mentally deluded. All right, well, fuck you. I'm going to the gym. Mm. And that was just one of the things that helped me. obviously i'm not saying everybody needs to do that but for me that was just one of the biggest things separating those entities and turning them into the servants and not the masters i really like that one considering my name is the fucking genie so i like that (laughs) (laughs) awesome well that's that's everything i've got i'm not going to hold you here for two more hours and talk about everything that we could (laughs) um is there anything else you want to leave off with something you want to say or any philosophical advice? <laughs> Put me on the spot. No, I think you covered a fair bit there. I, I guess the overarching thing I want people to, to begin to understand is that whether they feel like they have the tools now or not, the tools exist for them to be able to take the health into their own hands or, or take control over the health again, right? So, you know, we've, for some reason, we've believed this narrative that humans kind of just break down. We just develop issues and... Like, you know, you just, there's a cosmic lottery and you ended up with this autoimmune condition and you ended up with this digestive condition and you ended up with this. And well, actually, no, we don't just all end up with random conditions and syndromes and dysfunctions. There's something which has caused that. And so you don't just need to be a, again, I use this term lightly, but you don't just need to be a victim to that. or You don't just need to accept that, but you can actually begin to dig deeper and you can begin to take control back over that. And it might be easy or might be hard or might, you might never get there. But there's, there's places for you to look and explore and take that next step into not just accepting the, the hand you've been dealt, but actually trying to dig deeper and optimize your health. Awesome. Love that. There is always a next step. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for actually taking the time out of your day, jumping on here, educating everybody. I don't know about everybody else that listened, but I found it educational as shit and fun as well. So Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much for jumping on and I'm sure I'll be speaking to you soon anyway. Sounds good. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thanks, man. See ya. Bye.